This is RDQI. Hey all, Dave here. Today we've got a great episode for all you coffee enthusiasts, history buffs, and psychonauts. What do those three types of people have in common? Uh, Well, you'll just have to listen to this episode to find out. Ryan and I discuss coffee and its role or potential role in starting the Enlightenment. Uh, But then very quickly, probably because we had way too many cups of coffee beforehand, we jump into extrapolating whether we can look at other transformative periods in history and to see if there were some similar correlations. We get into some interesting history and make some pretty neat connections on this episode, so grab a cup of coffee and prepare to have your mind expanded. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Dave's Relish. Yes, it's hot. Deal with it. Why'd you buy it? Dave'sRelish.com Dave, did coffee jumpstart the Enlightenment? Well, it certainly jumpstarted my Enlightenment. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Was Was that too lame? No, uh, probably. So, so you're saying that coffee kicked off your age of reason as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, just for the record, I didn't spend the you know entire last two hours thinking up that one liner. It was three. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is interesting because it's it's kind of it reminds me of our conversation about uh, about beer and and you know did beer uh, start civilization. I, I, I'm sure that what I said then pertains to, to what I'm saying now, did it start the enlightenment? (laughs) I, I can't imagine that it's the singular cause for starting enlightenment. You know, we, we try and attribute very simple causes to, to, effects because we we can't comprehend all the little tiny puts and takes that that cause things to to happen Mm. um or causes major shifts in human thought or really i mean paradigm shifts in in the way humanity operates because really that's what the enlightenment is um you know it's coming off of of oh boy (laughs) this is you know, you're going to jump into sure Middle Ages history? Wildly wrong. Yeah. I didn't know you were a scholar of Middle Ages, Dave. A thousand years? That seems correct and incorrect at the same time. Let's go with a thousand years. And uh, I think and it was we'll, shorter, but yeah, it was, an ex- it was many centuries of extended time that a lot of historians, or they're referred to the Dark Ages by certain, you know pieces of historian um culture yeah kind of saying like specifically western europe right so when we talked about the enlightenment we're talking about western europe specifically because the dark ages in in western europe were you know i i believe i mean if you're looking at other other cultures around the world at that time there were some very relatively enlightened places sure Mm mm-hmm but Western Europe, um, you know, you had this 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 period of the Dark Ages where uh, you had feudalism, um, you know, which is essentially a kind of like a bonded servitude form of 
organization of labor and yeah, it was like um, you know, ninety nine percent of the populations were serfs essentially, right? And they worked for their lord. Their lord levied soldiers and taxes for the king if there was a king in their region. Is that that's the feudal system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, any kind of scientific progress was stamped out because it you know seemed to encroach upon the the purview of god and christianity sure because the i mean the undisputed powerhouse of western europe in this time frame is the christian church or the catholic church in particular Mm -hmm. right so when was galileo again it's like early 1600s something like that i want to say it was 15 something or rather just pulled it up. Uh, Born 1564, yeah. died 1642. Hey, okay. So, yeah, right Both around right. this time where enlightenment is starting to begin, Galileo, who basically said something um, revolutionary, which is that the earth is not the center of the universe, he was ostracized from society and um, kept in house arrest, right? For a while? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, questioning the power could get you in a lot of trouble. But there was this burgeoning time where people were really curious and had new ideas about how to look at the world. Um, And it just so happened to coincide with the introduction of coffee into Western European culture as well. And that one I can dive into a little bit more. Um, So, as a former coffee professional, from everything from a barista to a roaster to a, you know, distribution side of the business... There's this story of Caldi and his goats, and this is the story of the origin story of coffee. Basically, this um, this goat herder was in the hills, and he noticed his goats were acting particularly um, energetic and boisterous after eating the leaves of this bush. So he goes to the bush, and he sees these red cherry-like things, and he notices that the goats are eating them. So he takes them, he brings them to his uh, like the local wise man um, in village. And through this process, the wise men realize that, oh, if we brew, you can make a drink with this bean and it energizes the mind. This is the fabled story of where coffee was discovered by humans. Um, Who knows if it's true? But it was either in Yemen or in Ethiopia that this happened. So basically the Arabian Peninsula or very eastern edge of Africa is where this all occurred. And that's actually where coffee is. Um, native to that area. Although there's, there's dispute if it's Ethiopia or Yemen, and no time for that right now. So, this is this goes back uh, centuries, millennia probably, this lore. But it was about the 1500s when Europeans finally interacted on a larger scale than the Arabian cultures. Um, so, the Islamic cultures really use coffee. Uh, they saw it as a, a benefit for staying awake during prayers, um, and just the fact that it was energizing and provided good conversation was a pretty big thing for them. And then it eventually, coffee made its way to Western Europe kind of two ways. One, Venice. This was when the Venetian Empire was still hanging around and still were like the trading power of the Mediterranean. And so they kind of obviously had a finger in it because they're like, what's going on here? Um, and it, but it caused quite a stir and the local clergy in Venice actually tried to ban it because the uh, I don't know, it stirred the soul or it was Satan worshiping, something like that. Wait, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, tr- they banned it. Um, and it, it was eventually taken all the way to the Pope. Um, <laughs> and I think it was Clement V 
shoot, I need to have known this before I said it. But um, basically, he he's like, okay, okay, let me let me sort this out. And he made himself a cup of coffee. This is how it, the story goes. <laughs> and he enjoyed its taste and its enervating um, and stimulating characteristics. And he said, all right, coffee's cool. And, and from then on, in Western Europe, coffee was totally fine, but culturally and socially. But where it really started to trigger was this story, that, that article I sent you, Dave, about the Ottoman Empire in Vienna, right? Mm-hmm. So, the Ottoman Empire was aspiring to conquer the world, as most empires have a desire to do, and they're expanding well beyond their you know, origin area of like what we call Turkey right now. And they were knocking on the gates of Vienna. Actually, I think they might have conquered Vienna for a brief period of time. I can't remember. But anyways, they were kicked out by the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Vienna was invaded by the Turkish army who left many bags of coffee behind when they fled the city. There we go. There we go. That's a Sean Pajanan quote. Yep. And I apologize, it was Pope Clement VIII. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? <laughs> I know, right? Get your, get your papal history straight. <laughs> so Coming here with this nonsense. So, in Vienna, all of a sudden, these Western Europeans realize, there's a bunch of these coffee beans here. What should we do with them? Most people thought, like, let's just destroy them. I think some, I found somewhere that they thought it might have been camel feed. Um, so, they thought it was completely worthless. But there was one member of the group who had spent time in the Ottoman Empire, it sounded like um, had been captured and it was not a, it wasn't a leisure trip sort of thing. But this individual was aware of kind of what could be done with coffee and he's credited with opening the first coffee house, although there's, I've seen in other places that there was a Greek family that opened a coffee shop a year before them in Vienna. So you kind of have to kind of take it with a grain of salt, just a little bit. <laughs> I I prefer no salt in my coffee, but sure. All right, fine. Be that way. So that was, you know, and just to kind of put this in chronological history, this is 1683. Mm-hmm. So we're talking long, long time ago. 1683 was the induction, uh, the the introduction to uh, in Vienna. Correct. That was when the first coffee house was opened. 1863, I've seen anywhere from like 1863 to 1868, that five-year window it seems to be when it began. <laughs> that far back, not not too bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think all of us who are listening and talking have an understanding of what a coffee shop is because there's, there's definitely a new international coffee shop that exists. Starbucks has gone a long way in promoting that sort of a, uh, the clean aesthetic, the focus on roasting and origin and the qualities of the bean and really trying to bring that quality to it. That wasn't exactly what was going on from what I could tell. It sounded more like a coffee house was a sociable place you could go. And for the cost of a cup of coffee, you could read any periodical, any journal, any international newspaper that was available. Um, you were surrounded by your peers and typically, these were visited by kind of the upper echelons of society. So, um, your thought leaders in the community were congregating in a place where they were supplied with a ton of information, essentially free, and also given a stimulant that helped them, A, clarify their thoughts a bit, and also probably talk a lot more rapidly. 
that's a pretty good recipe for not starting the enlightenment because i would agree with you they didn't start it but it certainly gave it a swift kick in the pans well and think about coffee being introduced um in in a society i mean you know when did you start drinking coffee i think i was maybe 16 and i remember you know brief a brief period of whoa this is a this is amazing but then very quickly it, it becomes you know a beverage that uh you know gets the wheels turning and gets you out of bed in the morning but doesn't give you quite the adrenaline kick that it did the first time you had it but here you have you know this adult society that has not really had any kind of stimulant type of beverage and all of a sudden you you jump in and it, it, it's like it's like if if you and I and everybody that we know all of a sudden you know got together and took a bunch of amphetamines Oh, <laughs> look, let me tell you about this thing. Hey, have you ever thought about the sun not being the center of the universe? Um, Are we sure on amphetamines right now? Or do we traipse into a different drug? <laughs> well, my, my point is, is that, you know, some sort of some sort of stimulant that your body's not used to that puts you in this state of like, uh, you know, euphoria and hyper hyper thought, hyper awareness. Mm. And then you just, you know, get in a room with all of the leading intellectuals of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's uh, honestly, it's not a, it's not that far of a stretch to, to think that, you know, did, did this just explosion of, of thought and just rethinking so many different disciplines. Cause that's what the enlightenment was is, you know, it's rethinking science, rethinking literature, rethinking art, rethinking architecture. You know, it was just, it was, it was a rethinking re rebirth of just all of these different avenues. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really not a far jump to say, yeah, a bunch of people got together and under the, under the influence of this new, stimulating beverage just decided to question everything <laughs> and i think one key thing to point out here too historically that's helpful because i did not know this until reading this article was that the common beverage for breakfast in western europe at the time was either small beer which is like low alcohol beer or wine so if your culture traditionally starts its day with alcohol which i'm sure was mostly because that was the most sterile beverage to drink um but still, you're starting out your day with a little tipple. It's not exactly going to lend your day to productivity and innovation, right? So it's almost mm -hmm. like double, double time effect. The fact that you're taking away a depressant at the beginning of the day, and now we've added a stimulant to the front of your day. That is pretty... Yeah, so maybe amphetamines isn't the worst comparison, Dave. <laughs> going a little bit hyperbolic, but I mean, it gets the point across. Yeah, because this is a time when... I mean, science in and of itself, as we know it, the scientific method, um, was being formulated. This is a time when um, a liberal education, as we know it now, um, you know, studying the seven humanities, was being developed in these um, post-medieval universities that were coming. Well, they were already there, but they were taking on a new age, obviously. So, it was quite mm -hmm. a dynamic time to throw a very particular drug at a culture. And then, of course, I mean, obviously, it's not just coffee, because in the English, you know, they started their empire, too, and then tea was their game. Um, they had a lot of access to it from China. So, 
tea kind of factored in there as well. So we can't leave tea out because that was pretty significant as well. Although it was around the same time um, that coffee and tea became widespread in England, it was the same time it became widespread in the rest of Europe, as far as I could tell. Yeah, I mean, tea, a little bit less caffeine. But again, if you've never had caffeine before, a cup of tea is going to, you know, put a put a significant skip in your step. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, totally left field, but do you know what kind of coffee they were serving at the original coffee houses? I'm just curious because I just, I just had a, you know, nice espresso um, before this conversation and... I really doubt that they had, you know, the the science of espresso is... Yeah, espresso hadn't been invented yet. That was the 1800s um, when the Italians invented espresso. Um, and even that, if we would have gone back to the original espresso machine, if we could have a time machine, it wouldn't look like espresso as we know it. Um, it was more like really quick drip coffee, basically. So, I, I don't know. I know in Vienna, the Viennese coffee culture that came out of this... Uh, a big innovation was filtering coffee and also the addition of milk and sugar as <clears throat> natural complements. So my understanding is it would pr- probably be something, you know, like a French press sort of a well, and, type and of I coffee. Turkish coffee is sort of, you know, t- mm-hmm. And I don't know for a fact, but kind of to me, the logical first step of coffee, because it's it's really just the beans, the water, and you don't really remove the beans. Right. It's it's gritty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which always, you know, just to take a step back, it, it always fascinates me the, the way that t- to think about humans discovering these very, very obscure ways of harnessing natural products, um, like beer, you know, we talked about. Um, coffee, chocolate, you know, how well, the, the steps that it takes to get, you know, chocolate, coffee, grain to its finished state is just, you know, it's, it's such a series of steps that I, I can't imagine you just backing into if you didn't know any better, you know, you had these coffee beans, why wouldn't you just eat them? Who left them? who roasted them, yeah. left them in water? I mean, you know, who, who opened up the first oyster? It's a rock. Like who thought there was something inside that thing? Um, well, it's good that know, humans are always curious. That's for sure. <laughs> but do you, do you know, at all. I mean, some of these, I, I think that's where the, some of these legends pop up, you know, the legend with the goat with coffee, um, the legend of, you know, somebody throwing uh, beer in a wine skin to, to create beer, you know, it's probably mm-hmm. not one singular event. Maybe it is. Um, right. right. It might've been right. But I think that's where those legends arise. Cause we just want one kind of fun story to tell about coffee. Yeah. It's so much easier to educate somebody, you know, your children or your grandchildren through story. So why wouldn't you, and that's naturally how humans tend to learn best is through a narrative format. Um, yeah, especially, do, do you I know mean, how we, so like it, we decided let's roast this and steep it in water and then also remove that other stuff and just drink that liquid. You know, I don't know the roasting, how, I don't know how that one came about because that is pretty unique. So for people who aren't super familiar with coffee, um, coffee beans come out of this cherry that looks very much like a cherry, almost like a crab apple for us Americans. And inside each cherry is two beans. They meet together and kind of form a sphere. When you pull them apart, that's what you get the flat side with the curved outside. 
Um, unless you have a rare genetic defect and then it's called a pea berry and then you know, there's only one bean in there. Way too much information for this conversation. Um, <laughs> but the problem is with raw or green coffee is what it's called because it tends to have a greenish hue. Um, is it is rock hard. You cannot ingest it. Um, if you threw unroasted coffee in a coffee grinder, you would break the steel burrs. Um, it's, it's just not consumable. So who did make that first leap? Like it must have been someone throwing coffee grounds in the fire, or leaving them in a dish and putting them over fire. Because traditionally, that's how coffee is prepared by um, at least Saudi Arabia or Arabian cultures that I know of. Is you roast the coffee in the morning. There's usually um, someone low on the totem pole, you know, like a son or a daughter might do this traditionally. Roast coffee in the morning. They grind it up in a mortar and pestle. They pour it into boiling water, and then they pull, like, like Turkish coffee, you just pour straight off. There's no filtering. That's traditionally how it was done. Mm. Um, especially because as nomadic people, you, you can't, like, you know, you're not making espresso machines, right? It's all about um, <laughs> carrying as little while getting as much as you can. So, when yeah. did... Yeah, that's a good question. Like, how did that work? And who figured it out? But what's... And what's crazy is that at least the Yemeni people or the Arabians in the area who started to control the coffee trade knew enough that they, if they boiled the coffee beans before roasting, they could, the coffee beans would last longer because they're unroasted and they will last a lot longer unroasted in terms of like oxidation and breaking down and bad, bad flavor hmm. stuff happening. But yeah. also what that does is it neutralizes the seed so it's, um, you wouldn't say it's inert, but it, well, maybe you would. I don't know. Either way, you couldn't grow a new coffee plant from it. So through this process, the area, mainly out of the port of Mocha, which is where we get the name Mocha for coffee, is M-O-K-A. It's a port. That's it. That's all there is to it. Um, so they were able to con basically control the world's coffee supply because all the coffee beans they sold couldn't grow new coffee trees. So they knew that much, which is pretty impressive for the six, you know, fifteen to sixteen hundreds. Yeah, to know like we need to control this because it's a valuable commodity, and here's how we can do it. So that, that, I mean, humans knew enough about coffee at that point. I'm sure they, if you knew that, you must have known at least three different ways to make a cup of coffee. But that's it's. It kind of boggles my mind. I mean, Dave, can you think of another, I don't want to say, it doesn't have to be a substance, it doesn't have to be a drug, but do you know of another commodity that is, um, involves that much scientific understanding that is met with such a global demand? <sighs> Alcohol, but sure. I mean, but, but it's really apples and oranges because, you know, alcohol could be a number of, you know, anything with, with some sort of sugar content and it can be made into alcohol. Sure. Coffee yeah. bean is, it's one plant. Um, I, you know what? Marijuana. Sure. I mean, that's the, you know, um, it's easily the, I wouldn't say the most interesting, but the amount of research around it seems to indicate that there's some benefits for society. Um, but then of course it's hard to research, at least in this country, because federally speaking, it's, um, still very much illegal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there actually would be a lot of parallels. You know, when it first, when the drug first arrived, um, it's looked down upon. Society says no, we can't do this. A little bit of time later, it's like, yeah, well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe we should like look into this again and maybe enable the drug. Um, yeah, and and you know, obviously, it won't <laughs> won't name this person, but uh, you know, somebody somebody that you and I both know, um, you know, is involved in in growing the plant, and I remember him kind of explaining and, and showing to me and you know, I, I have a giant garden. I love growing vegetables, but the level to which he is controlling every tiny little environmental aspect that, that takes place in, in getting this plant to full maturity, it's mind blowing. Um, you know, every, like the soil minerality and pH level is monitored daily. Moisture is monitored daily. Humidity is monitored daily. Um, you know, uh, air circulation. I mean, it's crazy the science that goes into it. And I got to tell you, I've never seen a more perfect looking plant. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. It's marvelous. (laughs) Um, but, but that just speaks to the level of, of technology of thought that's gone into perfecting this, this commodity. And I mean, it, you know, it's an illegal commodity, but that hasn't stopped. You know, the, the funny thing about economics is it doesn't really care if it's legal or not. Like law has no (laughs) bearing on economics. It's if a product is going to be sold, it's going to be bought. If if a product is going to be traded, if right. there's a demand for it, it will there you know will be a supply that rises to meet it, regardless of the legality, which is you know kind of a, an argument for the legalization of everything. Because you criminalize something, it doesn't make it go away; it just opens up a black market. <laughs> right. You just allow someone else to monetize it. Right. With less rules um, and safety precautions in place. Yeah. So so you know you don't. There's not as much public, uh, not public, but let's say common knowledge about marijuana as opposed to coffee, but it's there. <laughs> mm. It's it's absolutely there. It is interesting because, I mean, obviously, we are harping on the stimula- stimulating effect, and that's usually been what has turned cultures on to coffee, is the awareness of like, wow, um, I can stay awake longer, I can read longer, I can accomplish more. That's kind of the flip with <laughs> marijuana or sorry cannabis um and because as far as i understand cannabis doesn't exactly give you a coffee high where you're just like okay let's get work done it's not uh, i've never met someone who's told me like yeah if i have a lot of work to do what i do is i you know prepare my cannabis how i want and consume it it's usually not the case whereas like it's a old school american thing to be like well brew up a fresh pot of coffee it's gonna be a late night sort of thing so they're two yeah. very different drugs, but their introduction to society, and to some degree, I mean, I would imagine that marijuana's influence, let's just focus on the 70s and music in America, and marijuana's influence there was, um... <laughs> Not to be understated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't figure a word good enough for it. Um, so prevalent ubiquitous i don't know what do you want to say i I would say without it you would have very different music and art coming out of that period of time sure and and then of course all the hallucinatory 
the LSD mushrooms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, yeah, I mean, right. They kind of hit our culture in tandem um, in a lot of ways. But yeah, the period would be drastically different. Um, Sonic. I mean, honestly, you could sort of say that in in the same way that we're trying to trying to theorize that coffee started the Enlightenment, I I kind of think that you know LSD specifically coupled with with marijuana sort of started the counterculture movement of the sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I mean, we're trying to simplify these things, but but I think. I think in going back to your original question, did coffee start the enlightenment? I don't know if it's solely responsible, but I think the enlightenment would look a lot differently if coffee wasn't around, if it didn't have a hand in it. Mm. And same thing with the counterculture movement. Right. Yeah. Cause not getting too off topic, but counterculture wasn't just about drugs. It was also this, um, generation that grew up post World War II and realized how horrendous World War II was, and was just like, "What is the point of all this? Like, why are we, you know?" And that's a very unsettling thought to, you know, have to come upon in the fifties as coming of age. So I can see how you'd want to experiment with something that might open your mind to new possibilities. Yeah, and it, I, you know, it's uh, counterculture wasn't about the the drugs, but the drugs you know, maybe took a, a feeling of unease with the, the, you know, current paradigm of the world and just showed your mind a possibility that you'd never would have seen without it. And so you have this, this fear of, of truly counter culture. You know, it's, it's not just, Hey, you know, we should, we should make things a little bit better. It was no, it was rebellion <laughs> mm-hmm. because, because with these drugs, they allowed you to see this, this, you know, compl- a world you never could imagine without opening those, those doors in your mind. And similar with, you know, and, and I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, speculate because we're closer to counterculture. You know, you and I have met people, our, our parents lived through that era. Um, it's hard to, you know, to my knowledge, nobody wrote in a book, Oh man, you know, I was, I was all about that dark age life, but then coffee. (laughs) And then I was like, Oh, Whoa, math, (laughs) geometry. This stuff's pretty cool. We don't, I, I don't I don't know if we have any any kind of written record like that, but um, you can imagine that it's it's it probably parallels pretty similarly, right? If you have this explosion of of intellect, um, intellectual thought, coffee mm-hmm. is probably the main driver that really allowed people to think in that way where they wouldn't have without it. And I think a key point here, too, is it's not just individuals having thought. It's individuals having thought and communicating with each other and sharing those ideas. I think that's the crux of any innovation is it's usually not an individual on their own who comes up with a revolutionary idea, um, like sitting in a dark room just thinking without getting input from anyone else in life. I would say it's that probably doesn't ever happen because who sits alone in a dark room like that? <laughs> So, by, you know, in the coffee, uh, in the case of coffee, by creating these penny universities, you just are naturally inclining humans to <laughs> think more and to be challenged by other people's thoughts, which then makes you reconsider your thoughts. 
Um, and then if we're kind of going more towards our current moment in time, there's more of a scientific push. I mean, so counterculture was, that time was like, these drugs were made illicit, probably because it was a way to um, make the counterculture completely counter, <laughs> to make it illicit. It it was. We can talk about that later. I've, That's totally I've different. I've been doing a ton right. of research into this, but yeah, it was. It was really a. Uh, it was a. It was a counter counterculture measure. Yep. Yeah. That's why cannabis is still what a schedule. I can't even remember. It's super dangerous according to the federal government, though. But not <laughs> alcohol. Alcohol is fine. Um, yeah. But now, I mean, this is kind of leaving, but leaving where we started. But I think very important for us to think is. We're also looking as humans in culture. We're looking at ways to use other hallucin or yeah, hallucinogenic drugs or otherwise to help mental health. I mean, I know um, ecstasy or MDMA is one of the main ones being used in particular PTSD counseling, as well as mar uh, marital counseling, as it were. Yeah, and that's very far along. I mean, they. I think they've. Uh, they're doing phase three trials now, which in the language of, you know, USDA testing, it's, it's the final phase before it's then, you know, rolled out for use in therapy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Still controlled in the way that any, you know, most mental health medications are controlled, but, you know, prescription. Right. Yeah. And there's definitely, I've, um, you could probably make a podcast from other people talking on podcasts about their LSD trips and how eye-opening of a, uh, an experience that can be for a person spiritually. Um, mm -hmm. Or, I mean, you know, any of those drugs that might be close to each other there. And I think we're, you know, our culture is playing with these drugs a lot right now. And I think if we don't get it right to some degree, if we don't have some critical thinking and conversation about how we should handle a new drug um, that was deemed illicit at one point, now we're seeing that there might be some possible uses that are beneficial. It's difficult to have that conversation. Um, coffee was easy, but even... Co sorry. Coffee wasn't easy, apparently. Um, I had to go to the Pope. But still, it was... Although, when I was reading... Most of the history books kind of point out the reason most uh, clergy didn't like coffee was it they considered it a Muslim drink. Um, and again, if we go back to Kaldi, the goat herder story, um, the goat in a goat's head in Western cultures, especially if you are close to the Christian church, is typically associated with the devil. So it didn't have a good rap, I think, for that reason. But that's not too far away from how some religious people um, orders would view some of these drugs we're talking about now. Yeah. It's, you know, you know, what, what are, what's the argument against it? Is it, you know, you think it's actually dangerous or do you just not like the people that it's currently associated with? And there's a lot to unpack there. It's, I mean, right. I mean, let's look there's at still people out there today who think, Oh, you know, LSD is bad because hippies. <laughs> right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the drug and its efficacy. It's that you don't like hippies. But hey, man, if that's what you need to hold on to to have a staunch opinion and stick with it, people will hold on to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> as we all know, it's very hard to change people's stance on things. Yeah. And no one's immune to it. That's for sure. 
What could be interesting, though, is, you know, even even during the 60s and 70s, it wasn't like everybody in society was using these things, using these drugs, right? It was still very fringe. Um, the Enlightenment, on the other hand, I mean, I don't know what percentage, but, you know, there was no taboo on it, really. Once once the Pope was in, everybody else was in, too. So it was sort of this, you know, allowed this this just explosion of ideas if we, if we follow that, you know, coffee had some sort of causality. I don't think it's solely attributable, but I think if coffee and tea, if those plants never existed on this earth, we'd be in a very different place right now, I think. So I would say today still, you know, drugs like marijuana is maybe becoming, you know, as, as it's as most of the states are legalizing it, it's becoming more common. But, it, you know, things like LSD, psilocybin, any of the, you know, the big uh, trip type hallucinogens are still, you know, pretty fringe. But if they if they start coming into the mainstream through mental health therapies, I mean, are we looking at the second enlightenment i mean if coffee gave us the enlightenment what is something like lsd mainstream going to do for the world 